Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. In today's episode, we bring you part two of our live event, How to Win Every Argument, with renowned interviewer and debater Mehdi Hassan. Here, Hassan reveals his tips and techniques for mastering the art of persuasion. From Demosthenes to Elizabeth Warren, he explores the importance of arguing throughout history and explains how we can all improve our communication skills. Part one of this event came out in our last episode and is available now to all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first, if you can. Part three is available exclusively to subscribers, along with a special bonus episode from our series Bright Sparks, where we'll be hearing from Mehdi on the creative ideas that make him tick. This event originally took place at Conway Hall on the 23rd of March, 2023. Over to our host, columnist, author and broadcaster, Jonathan Friedland. A surprising tip in your book is that you say on homework, quantity, not quality. No, I, I say in the context of brainstorming, oh, okay. quantity, no, I say when, you, when you're sitting down to come up with an idea for a speech like that, like how do I come up with a speech like that? I'm t- I try and give people insights into how do I construct speeches? How do I construct interviews, which I spend a lot of time on. What I say in the book is that if you go, I think it's Alex Osborne who's the founder of brainstorming back in the 1950s. And he and his protégés came up with this idea that brainstorming is about quantity, not quality. The idea is to put as many ideas on the page, throw as many things against the wall, see what sticks. And if stuff comes out that's bad, no harm, no foul, put it in the bin, right? You it doesn't cost you anything to come up with a bunch of crazy ideas. So I do the same thing when I do interview questions. I, I, I don't worry about quality to begin with. I put down on page everything that I could possibly ask the person in front of me, from the irrelevant to the irreverent. And then I go, all right, well, MSNBC are never let me ask this question. Oh, this one will get me fired. This one's mm, slightly gratuitous. This is a bit unfair. This one I can't back up factually. And I get rid of the ones, that, and then I refine it down. So when I talk about that in that sense, that's, that's more the where do you start your brainstorming and research from? Yeah. Let's see a third example because there's a, a whole series of questions that flow from this. It did, uh, you, you know, it, it, it went viral at the time. It got a lot of attention. You were interviewing the former national security advisor to Donald Trump, John Bolton. This is not, we talked about Iraq for a long time, but I wanted to talk about more than Iraq. So I brought up his support for regime change in Iran, and I wondered whether it was tied to the fact that he was giving paid speeches to a group of nutcases called the MEK, this kind of cult anti, uh, anti-Muller group that's run by some weirdos, and uh, that was the context for the questions. Okay, let's see this clip. Over 15 minutes. 15 minutes is nearly up. Let me ask you this. How how much of your antipathy towards Iran is to do with geopolitics? How much of it is to do with the fact that you've had a long association with a group called the MEK, which was once a terrorist group banned by the State Department while you worked there? You don't mention it in your book. I I looked in your book. There's no mention of the MEK. I think you took tens of thousands of dollars for several speeches. Just wondering how much that influences your policy on Iran. You know that I took tens of thousands of dollars from speeches for speeches at liberal universities in the United States. Uh, this is uh, this is this is really about as low as it gets. The, the fact is that Hillary Clinton, perhaps someone you support, took the MEK off the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. How about that? I speak what yeah, I believe. She took, she took it off in 2012. You were speaking with them in 2010 when they were still a banned group. Yeah, no, look, that, 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 you're simply wrong on your facts on this. I no, you were there in I, Paris in 2010 speaking at the MEK rally when they were still a banned terrorist group, according to the State Department. Opinion, 
Nobody buys my opinion, and you can ignore that if you want. I'm very comfortable. I have never said anything other than what I believe. And we are now, sir, 20 minutes into this interview, which you said was for 15. I believe it's 15 minutes. I've got a timer going off in my ear, so. <laughs> So, so my question watching that is, why on earth would anybody ever go on your show? <laughs> That's the question I get asked by friends of mine. I say, don't jinx it. Uh, as we Muslims say, don't nazar me. Don't give me evil eye. I need to put food on the table. I need guests to come on my show. But it is a, it's a question a lot of people ask. Um, when I did Eric Prince, mm. a lot of people ask, why did Eric Prince come on your show? And I have to explain who he is. Eric Prince is the former CEO of Blackwater, a mercenary company. It's probably one of the most viral interviews I've ever done. It actually got, ended up with him getting referred to the Department of Justice for a criminal investigation for alleged perjury because I called him out for uh, contradictions in his testimony. And people said afterwards, Eric Prince, this re Republican Trump-supporting mercenary, why would he come on your show? And I, I said, I don't know. If I was Eric Prince, I wouldn't have come on my show, but I'm glad he did. Thank you, Eric Prince, helped my career a lot. Um, I don't know why people come on the show. There's a mixture of reasons I can only speculate. Some people, like John Bolton, they just enjoy a row. Bolton's been debating since Yale University. They're very uber-confident in their own abilities. And I respect that. It's good. Let's, let's do it. I like people you know, who want to have a good argument in good faith. Um, some people are ignorant. They don't do their homework. They don't know anything about the show when they turn up. I did an interview with a senior government official from a country I won't name who came on a show I did. And as they sat in, the, I could see them, in, it was a remote interview, and I heard them say to an aide, what is this show, who's this host? Right. And I was like, you really should have asked that days ago before you turned up to do the interview. And surprise, surprise, that government then complained to Al Jazeera and the Qatari government afterwards. So ignorance, arrogance, some people are just on a book tour, so they sit down for any interviews. Um, <laughs> It's become harder as I've become uh, slightly more well-known in the US. Being at Al Jazeera English gave me a certain anonymity uh, in an American audience, at least. Um, but yes, it's become much more difficult. It's also become more difficult, Johnny, because the people I really want to interview, some of these kind of right-wing crazies, are so crazy I don't actually want to give, put them on my show. There's a chapter that's not in the book, which is, when do you not have an argument? When do you walk away from an argument? Mm. And I, you know, I'll interview John Bolton, as repulsive as I find his politics. Because I, I know that he believes what he's saying. I don't think he pretends to support the Iraq war. He genuinely believes that mm -hmm. was the... He thinks it was the right thing to do. He doesn't think he did anything wrong. And he's clearly an intelligent person, even if I don't like him. But would I have, like, a Marjorie Taylor Greene on my show? No, because I just... Election deniers, no. Climate change deniers, no. Holocaust deniers, no. Just, I'm not going to argue reality. I'm not going to argue up mm. is down, black is white, hot is cold. That stuff, I won't do. But people who are willing to come on in good faith, even if they haven't done their homework about me, yeah, bring it. But as you said, more and more people are doing their homework and people, will, you know, the show has a reputation. Yeah. I'm wondering if, if in a way, firstly, they're going to shy away from coming on your show, but also whether that one of the sadnesses of the current polarized state of particularly American life, but I think it maybe exists in other places, is that the kind of old school debate that you embody and that you yeah. relish is happening more and more rarely. Yeah. So that actually people are in their silos speaking only to their yeah. political family. Yes. And very rarely are they colliding with the opposite camp. And in a way, 
well, it's, you know, it's been great for you, but you know, you're part of that because you're on MSNBC. Most of the guests on MSNBC are not John Bolton. Yeah. They're actually Democrats interviewing other Democrats, yes. liberals interviewing other liberals. It's all very cozy. I mean, your show stands out as something of an exception, but do you think it is a sort of endangered form and that the network you work for is part of the problem? So it's definitely an endangered form, but I don't think the part on the network, is, I, I'm not so cynic because I'm employed and they pay my bills, but genuinely, I, 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 kind of, I kind of get, I get frustrated with this, MSNBC's liberal, Fox's conservative, cable's divided America. America's divided for many, many reasons, well beyond cable news. And oh, it's also, a symptom, not a cause. It's yeah. a symptom, but also, I don't hide the fact that I do an opinion show and I'm on a network that's considered liberal left, that's very different to Fox. Fox is not a news network. Fox is a propaganda organ, and you don't have to take my word for it. Just check out the leaked emails and depositions from the Fox Dominion case that's going on right now, where Rupert Murdoch admits under oath that his hosts were lying and they endorsed a big lie and maybe they shouldn't have, where you know, Fox hosts are texting each other saying, well, T Trump's lawyers are crazy and this stuff is mad and our viewers, they believe this stuff. You know, I tell people, you can loathe everything I say on my show, but I guarantee you, I say the same thing in private. I don't say something different to my audience. And then me yeah. and Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes don't text each other saying, ha ah, ha, we actually love Donald Trump. Or ah, Joe Biden actually lost the election. It doesn't happen. So on a fundamental factual basis, Fox yeah. is not news, MSNBC is news. Look, I would like to have more people from, I hate soggy consensus. I would like to have more people to disagree with. But again, as I say, if part of the political spectrum has been taken over by grifters, con men, gaslighters, people who don't believe in stuff, then I don't know where to go to find good faith argument. I try, we look for it, but it's getting, it is getting harder and harder. And it's depressing. One of the reasons I wrote the book is to try and push back against that, to yeah. say these people are degrading our public discourse, our public square. There is a way to do it better. History teaches us that, my own career teaches us that, common sense teaches us that. So it is a kind of call to arms in a sense. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. A lot of people when they move countries, British people who then live abroad say they never feel more British than when they are in the new country abroad, right? Interesting. And I'm wondering if for you that's happened in this very particular way, which is it seems to me that what you're doing on American television is bringing the techniques that are actually quite normal yes. and of British political interviewing that 
Robin Day, much you know, before your time, but Jeremy Paxman, John Humphreys, Andrew Neal, that's just what they do. Now, I, you know, I, as you know, I lived in Washington a while, I worked there. It, there was an abs absence of that then too, uh, and I can completely see why you're sort of revolutionary there. You shake things up because you're the first person they've had doing that. What, what is going on in American culture, do you think, that explains why they have this much less confrontational, more yeah. polite mm. media than Britain, given the fact that actually people think of this country as being yes. the country that it's, of, it's, it's, is it, conflict-averse and more polite. So what's that about? Yeah, it's, it's, it's something I've talked about for the last eight, nine years since I've been there. I talked about it on Seth Meyers' late-night comedy show. I've talked about it wherever I could talk about it. People ask the same question. What's the difference between the British media and the US media? Look, I'm a big critic of the British press, as you know. There's many problems with our media. But when it comes to TV interviews, we do do it better than the US and most other countries. I grew up watching Paxman, idolizing Paxman, loving what he did. Um, and I, on the book tour in America, I brought up the Paxman story in front of multiple audiences and said, there was a guy on British TV, go on YouTube. He once asked our version of the Attorney General the same question 13 times, if you remember the famous 1994 Michael Howard interview that Paxman did. Mm. Um, and eyes bulge there. They can never imagine an American interview doing that. would just be seen as rude, rude. crossing a line. Um, and it is interesting. The country that is the revolutionary country, the country that threw off the monarchy, threw off unbridled executive power, threw off British tradition, is now the country that's kind of suffocated by tradition, conventions, norms. And when you try and push against those, people get very upset. I do think it is a cultural thing as well, and yeah. that we, we, we're just ruder, aren't we? I mean, just to be honest, like, you know, we don't, we don't you know, what, a, big, a bigger cultural shock for me than American television when I went there is just the basics of going to get groceries or going to the store. Like, I don't need to say have a nice day to everyone every day. I don't need to chat to the person on the metro. Like, I'm from the London Underground. You look down person's being stabbed next to you, you carry on reading your Kindle. Like, that is where I, that's the, you know. Uh, so, so it is, I think we're a bit more in your face. We're less concerned about kind of polite. It is, it is, it is a complete inversion in a way that people don't realize. When the president walks in the room, the press corps stand up in the right US. Right. And that's partly because he's the head of state, not just the head of government, but it's not just the president. Senators, Congress, isn't it weird in America, they keep their titles forever. I was forever. just about to mention this. Just <laughs> mind boggling. Secretary Clinton, Mayor Giuliani, mayor of what? Your back garden, you haven't been mayor for 15 years. But they just keep it like you keep dukes and lords. It's very, very odd. It's like their own aristocracy. Yeah. And I wish we could get rid of a lot of that because that would help a lot with interviews. Also, I do think there's a separate problem which afflicts Britain, Britain and America, which is, you know, try not, I try not to socialize too much with people in power. You know, if you're hanging out with people and dining and whining and meeting with people in power, it's very hard then to do a tough interview with them yeah. the following morning. Yeah. You describe a moment on, uh, in the book on being, when you've been on question time and you, I mean, the book is, you know, you're not hesitant to blow your own trumpet in the book. You always tell us which clips went viral, how many uh, clips, how many retweets you get, etc. If but you're one, not going to bang your own drum, who is? Who will? So in one of these moments, you say that David Dimbleby asks, comes up to you after you've just astonished the audience with your brilliance. And he comes up to you and says, how come you know so much, he says. Uh, and he's a, a really shock, um, surprised to hear how much homework you've done. You tell him. And it just struck me that that might be a kind of child of immigrants thing. That if you are uh, David Dimbleby, if you're called, you know, if you're called David Dimbleby, you just breeze onto yep. question time. You don't need to do a ton yes. of homework. But if you, because you feel kind of born to it and entitled to it, but if you're called Mehdi Hassan, yep. 
my word, you better be, yep. to coin a phrase, twice as good as everyone else on that panel and do much more homework. And get half as much back as the phrase goes. I think you're 100% right. That is, that is a lot of it. And the chapters on doing your homework and preparation definitely flow from being the child of uh, Indian immigrants uh, and now being, you know, my wife and I are both of Indian origin and we do that to our kids too. You know, my, my daughter will say, I've got homework, but it's optional. There's no optional homework. <laughs> you do it all tonight. Yes. No TV till the optional stuff's done. What do you mean optional? No, but the other kids aren't doing it. Doesn't matter. Yeah. So we are very much of that school, and that comes from both of our parents. Um, and yeah, I think I think being overprepared is partly the legacy of the kind of hard work of immigrants who are trying to fit in. It's also the legacy of being held to a different standard. Uh, there's a lot of white privilege involved with yeah. people on Question Time. Um, you know, I was with Baroness Varsi on Saturday. In Bradford doing an event like this. And she, she and I were talking about how we both spent a lot of time on the footnotes of the book. I spent ages trying to get this right, still fingers and toes crossed that I covered everything, sourced everything, really wanted to get it right. And she made the point, I won't take the name, she named a conservative politician, a white man, whose book came out at the same time as hers, had no footnotes in it. Right. And she went over to him and she said, that's what white privilege looks like. Hmm. She had hundreds of footnotes. He didn't feel the need. He had to sort, cite anything yeah. because he's who he is. Yeah. So, and he and thought that would be authority enough. That, that would be authority enough. And mm. question time, I think, with the great respect to David Dimbleby, retired man that he is, I think that's an approach. You don't, you know, who's this young, brown, outspoken kid, and how does he know more than the cabinet minister who's to mm. my left? Because I did my homework. When I did question time, I would block out two to three days of the week. I would read everything. And the story in the book that yeah, I talk yeah. about, it was about something I knew nothing about. It was about the Sports Personality of the Year Award. There was mm. a big debate about why weren't there any women on the shortlist. Mm. And I'd gone through and checked like, how the Manchester Evening News had voted in that way. And you know, it, it pays off. There's great return when you put in the work. The yeah. return is there. And I, and I tell that story because I want to show people that the return is there, it's worth doing the work, that it's a value add, and yes, to bang my own drum. Yeah, sure. Good for you. Which um, is also an immigrant thing, No, totally. I would argue. Well, I'm going to stay with that. I mean, about being a Muslim in America, I mean, on the one hand, it's the land of religious faith, much yeah. more than here. It's the, you know, houses of worship per hundred people, more than any other country in the industrialized world, on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, it's a country where a man could propose a Muslim ban, as he called it, and get elected president. Yeah. So for you, is it easier or harder to be a Muslim in America than it is to be a Muslim in Britain? It's a great question. It's a question I've wrestled with for nearly a decade now. And I guess, my, again, to go back to what I said right at the start, context matters. I guess it depends when and where I am. Mm. I, you know, am, I, am I talking as a Muslim in the media? Am I talking as a Muslim father of two kids, trying to bring up their kids in the school? Uh, it all depends on where you are. And I, my answer changes depending on the year, the time. Right now, I would say, having come back to the UK and seen what's going on in the UK, and seeing some of the debates you recently had on Prevent in particular, mm. I would say it's probably worse to be a Muslim in the UK right now. I probably wouldn't have said that in 2016, 2017, 2015. But I think the US is in a much better place. You talked about the Muslim ban. Obviously, the man who pitched that Muslim ban uh, then saw thousands of people turn up at airports to resist that Muslim ban, yeah. uh, and then was voted out of office, and then had that Muslim ban revoked. And I, so I think we are in a different place in the United States right now. Um, Again, you mentioned Christianity and church faith. I mean, that is on the plus column. Although white Christian evangelicals... Oh, yes, I mentioned on the plus column. Well, it's plus and minus. White Christian evangelicals tend to be the most Islamophobic people, mm. sadly, um, out of, mainly out of ignorance, but also out of fear and paranoia. 
But on the other hand, it is a land that still respects faith in a way that the UK and parts of Europe certainly don't. I am much, I'm much more comfortable about expressing my faith uh, as a journalist in the US, and I don't know how you feel about this, also being a person of faith, but you know, I think the British secular media is probably more antipathetic, more hostile towards faith in general. Not just, and I don't mean hostile as in like mean, but more like, what is this? That's mm. weird. Mm. Anything to do with God and religion. You pra- the number of people in the UK who would be shocked over the years, right from my Oxford days to my media days, uh, I actually practice. You actually fast, you don't drink. Mm. I get less of that in the United States because there are more people of all faiths practicing. So I think that is a cover that you do get there. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I meant. It's a a country that just has the language of or the vocabulary of faith. And I think the last time you and I did one of these, or perhaps the first time we did one of these face-to-face conversations, we we ended up trading tips on fasting as the Jew and the Muslim coming in, up in the room. You're joining um, us, Johnny? My one is not till, the, not till September. Your one's uh, like one day. It's 25 hours. It's unbroken. Right. Come on. It's 25 I hours. Know. You, you, you basically cram it all into one. We do. We spread it out. Your, 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 yours although, is, although the classic question, every Muslim in the room, if, how many Muslims here, I don't know. When you're a kid, do you always hear is, you're fasting for 30 days. Yeah. Don't eat for, th- no, every day from sunrise to sunrise. Um, just one quick point though, one last thing on the Christian thing is, is what's, what's funny on the, on the Christian element is that it is, it is the kind of land of faith and you are able to talk about faith and you are able to kind of uh, uh, have the language of Christianity and yet it is depressing to see what's happened with evangelicals and their shift to the right. Mm. These are a group of people who claim to not like Muslims, Jews, whatever, because they're not people of the Bible, but their favorite politician is the most unchristian man yeah. in the history of mankind, Donald J. Trump, thrice married, twice adulterer, failed casino owner, man who can't identify one verse of the Bible. He is their hero. He is yeah. their golden calf. Yeah. So that is deeply depressing to see what's happened. They have this the whole Christian theological life. argument that he's like Cyrus. Yes, say, he'll come A flawed man who's sent as the, as the instrument of God. I live in a country where the craziest religious people aren't Muslims. (laughs) Which is a huge advantage, I can tell you, having lived in a country where Muslims, like, I'll be honest, with the greatest respect to my British Muslim brethren, we've done some crazy stuff in this country, and people in our community have done some crazy stuff. In the US, like, it's Muslims, (laughs) forgive the phrase, hold my beer, it's our Christian cousins who are insurrecting at the Capitol. So I had Ilhan Omar on my show the other day, Hmm. and she and I had a conversation about terrorism. It was two Muslims on primetime MSNBC talking about terrorism that wasn't Muslim terrorism. That was a weird moment for me, Um, through the looking glass. And were you urging the mainstream Christian community to denounce the phenomenon? I do, I do, I can't help but make that that snarky point, always. Yes. Um, very, very good. Um, we've got lots of, of things I could still get into here, but I thought we would give you a chance to chip in with your own questions. And we do have our little competition, which I am, well, I might as well mention that now. If any of you fancy taking on champion debater Mehdi Hassan today, um, I have three topics written down in which I think he will find it pretty hard to make a case, and you will find it pretty easy. So I will give you the easy case to make in 60 seconds, and he will have to reply. And I don't know what they are. I have no idea know, what you He has no idea what they are. I, I will give you the easy one, Booby 60 trap, seconds, and he will have 60 seconds to make the counter-argument. I promise you, you will get the easier end of the uh, draw. So if you fancy doing that, put your hand up, if anyone wants to have a go at that. But in before, why do you think about it and think, am I really going to do this? 
it's going to be another viral clip for Mehdi. Um, why don't we insist that while you're thinking about it um, and talking about it with your friends, if you can make your way to the microphone that's over there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The third and final part of this event is exclusively available to our subscribers who can access all episodes ad-free now, along with a bonus episode of Bright Sparks, where we hear from Mehdi on the creative ideas that make him tick. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay, with editing by executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. <laughs>